You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the Word of our God together. We turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 41. Our scripture reading begins at verse 33. Our text begins at verse 41. So our scripture reading is Genesis 41, 33 to the end, and our text is verse 41 to the end. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt, so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as a second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath-Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Azanath daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. 
When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, physical fitness is one of life's necessities. You and I need to take good care of our bodies if we want to live long, healthy, and productive lives. And that means eating right, not getting into all sorts of junk food. It means getting our rest, not trying, in other words, to live and function on the bare minimum amount of sleep. It also means a certain amount of physical activities not becoming, for example, a couch potato. In short, then, we need to take care of the physical bodily side of our lives. But you know, we also need to do more. We also need to realize that spiritual fitness is also one of life's necessities. After all, does the Apostle Paul not say that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come? So godliness training, you can say, needs to go hand in hand with physical training. You can only be a complete person if you stress and are active in both ways. Unfortunately, we do not always realize this. I I think that by now most of us see the value of exercise. Medical news and education have done a good job in that regard, and We may not like physical training, but by now surely we know that it is something that is necessary. But does the same go for training in godliness? If the kind of lives that so many of the population live, and if the kind of lives that also not just a few professed Christian lives is any indication, then the answer is no. And indeed, I suspect that if a survey were taken, it would indicate that while physical training is on the increase, godliness training is in decline. Steep, deep decline today. And that's not just sad, it's catastrophic. But Paul reminds us that while physical training is of some good, it only gets you so far. It only pays you dividends for the short, brief, present life here below. But on the other hand, godliness training pays dividends both for the present life and also for eternal life. It will help and benefit you forever. And so, in a way, as our young people would say, this is a no-brainer. To be busy with the first and to ignore the second is an obvious recipe for disaster. 
But do we realize that, beloved, and take it to heart? Joseph did. Yes, we're back to our continuing series on God's dealings in the life of Joseph. And what we have seen thus far is a young man who experiences God's care and strength. And a young man who is committed to holiness. He does not allow hatred to consume him because of the ill-treatment of his brothers. He does not jump into bed with Potiphar's wife. He does not get angry at God when he is unjustly accused and jailed. He does not allow his soul to grow sour, bitter, and useless in prison. Now, he remains committed to the high road, the road of godliness and righteousness. And the result, beloved, well, you see it in our text, when his day of restoration finally comes, he's ready and he's fit for service. And so let us see today what he does with his opportunity. I preach to you on the following theme, God's deliverer takes charge of Egypt. And we shall take note of the power that Joseph obtains, the confession that Joseph makes, and the recommendation that Joseph receives. Well, beloved, the first part of our text before us tells us how Joseph is finally promoted. Pharaoh, you remember, had those two dreams that no one could or perhaps dared to interpret as well as to apply. And in the midst of looking for an interpreter, the chief cupbearer suddenly has a bright moment and he remembers Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams. And therefore Joseph is fetched out of prison and he is set and plunked before the Pharaoh. And once there, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. But as you could tell from our scripture reading, that last part, he does more than simply interpret these dreams. He also gives Pharaoh some free and good advice on how best to handle what these dreams have told him. A man needs to be appointed who will make such good use of the seven fat years that are coming that the next seven lean years will not ruin the land of Egypt. And who is that man to be? Well, the answer comes in our text. There Pharaoh declares and says to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Instantly, at the word of Pharaoh, Joseph finds himself elevated. He goes from the prison to the palace, from being a prisoner to the prime minister, from enslavement to enrichment. Joseph is gloriously promoted. Yes, and that is not only expressed here in words, it's also demonstrated in deeds. First, Pharaoh takes his signet ring off his hand and he puts it on Joseph's hand. And you know that ring, that's the sign of authority. Often its face would be pressed into wax that sealed very important documents. 
And thereafter, Pharaoh dresses Joseph in robes of fine linen, the kind of white linen that was customarily worn by Egyptian nobility. And next, he puts a gold chain around his neck. You may know that still today, the mayors of large cities wear big chains around their necks, especially at important functions to indicate their office and their status. And also Pharaoh has him ride in a chariot, probably one of his specially designed chariots. And in addition, it says that he has men run ahead of him saying, make way. Actually, the footnote of the Nive is more accurate when it says that these words should be translated as bow down. Bow down before Joseph out of respect for Pharaoh of Egypt. And you know what would happen if you didn't bow down? You risked losing your head. But then, beloved, if the ring, the robe, the chain, and the chariot all point to Joseph's elevation, we have to say it doesn't stop there. And notice that Pharaoh also insists on a name change for Joseph. Henceforth, he is known to the Egyptians as Zephanas Phania. Now, what does that name mean? Well, we have to admit we can't say with absolute certainty. The most widely accepted proposal is that it means God speaks and he lives, or the God who said he will live. Either one of those interpretations still indicate that whether Pharaoh realized it or not, he was giving Joseph a name that gave credit to God for his rescue, for his new status. So often when people say things, they have a double meaning. They have a meaning on the low level, you can say, and they have a meaning on the high level. And probably this name that he gave Joseph had a certain meaning among the Egyptians, but its real meaning was all about God. The God who speaks, and the God who lives, and the God who delivers. But then, beloved, if Joseph receives a new Egyptian name, he also receives something else, a new Egyptian wife. He probably hadn't asked for that, but he receives her anyway, and her name is Asenath, which means she who belongs to the goddess Nias. She's said to be the daughter of Potiphar, a priest. And so Joseph receives a new wife. And so what does that tell us? Well, it surely tells us that Pharaoh goes out of his way to do everything that he can to turn Joseph into an Egyptian. He goes out of his way to give his new prime minister a new identity. And of course, we may wonder at some point whether Joseph should have resisted and rejected some of this. Was it right for Joseph, for example, to accept a new name when he already had a perfectly good Hebrew-Jewish name? And even more, was it right for him to accept a new heathen wife and thus be unequally yoked to an unbeliever? 
But you know, beloved, before we call into question Joseph's actions here, we do well to reflect on two things. First is that Joseph is obviously being put in a very unique and special situation here. God has led his life. I think we'll all agree in a very extraordinary manner. And God has done that because God has special plans for Joseph. Special intentions for his life. And the second thing is that we hear of no disapproval on God's part. And you know, whenever God is silent about something questionable in the Bible, you and I need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't draw out too quickly the guns of condemnation and fire them off. In any case, what we need to see and what our text wants to tell us is just how high Joseph has risen in Egypt. He's very much the right-hand man of Pharaoh, the second most important person in all the land of Egypt. Yes, and it was with all this power and importance that he sets out to do his work. And you'll notice the verses 46 to 49 tell us how he traveled throughout the land, how he used the seven years of plenty to collect food, how he created storage depots throughout the length and the breadth of the land of Egypt. And special attention is pointed to the bounty and the huge amount of grain that was harvested. And indeed, there's every indication that Joseph does his work And he does it well. He does it faithfully. And also there is something else. There is every indication that he does all of this work while firmly committed to the Lord. You know, all through the hard years of exile and imprisonment, he had kept on doggedly, persistently serving the Lord. And that was remarkable. But you know what's even more remarkable? It's the fact that he does exactly the same thing after he is so highly promoted. After he gets all these honors and all of these these glories and all of these blessings and all this power and all this wealth, he continues to be the same man. And to run the same course. In other words, he doesn't allow his great promotion to adversely affect him. And I think you and I know that that's something that often happens in this life. A man gets a huge promotion or he comes into bags of money. Or suddenly he wields great power and what do you see? He no longer associates with his old friends because they're now beneath him. And he joins new clubs, country clubs, so that he can smooth with his new buddies. 
And he sells his house and he moves into a better, higher class neighborhood. And his wife takes on airs and decides that she too now needs to mix with a more sophisticated crowd. And as for God and church, well, both of them take a serious hit. God doesn't seem so important when you're wrapped in success and when you have everything that you could possibly want in this life. And church, too, seems to take a backseat to things that now suddenly seem so much more important. And prayer and Bible study and fellowship and daily witness. All those things tend to suffer under the glow of promotion and power and affluence. And yet, beloved, there's no evidence that it affected Joseph in this way. And how can we really tell? Well, look what he does when his children come along. His firstborn son is born and he calls him Manasseh. And that, by the way, is not an Egyptian name. It's a Hebrew name. And it's not an empty one either. It means it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Now, you may wonder about that. Forgetting all my trouble, forgetting all my father's household. Is is this now speaking about a case of, of double forgetfulness? Well, actually, beloved, verse 51 should be read as, It is because God has made me forget my sufferings and my sufferings in my father's household. All those times when he was being picked on by his brothers. All those times when he was in prison. When he sees his firstborn son, he is reminded that there are more important things in life and greater blessings. God makes him forget all his sufferings and all his troubles. But then, beloved, along comes a second son, and Joseph names him Ephraim, another good Hebrew name, meaning, because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Do you hear how he gives credit to God? God made me fruitful. It's not me. It's not my ingenuity. It's not my perception. It's not my wisdom. It's God's doing. He turned my life into a fruitful tree. And all my buffetings have become blessings. And my barrenness has become fruitfulness. And I am able to prosper in this strange land and world. So, beloved, how do we know that Joseph kept his faith even when he belonged to the high and the mighty in the land? We know it by the kind of names he gives to his sons. Manasseh and Ephraim. They speak of God's care 
God's faithfulness. God's help. God's blessing. Joseph keeps the faith. Yes, and as we notice this, beloved, and reflect on it, we need to see something else as well. And you wonder, what else do we need to see? Well, we need to see that in in so many ways, in this chapter as well as in previous chapter, Joseph is pointing us ahead to our Lord Jesus Christ. You can say Joseph is a type of Christ, a model of what Christ will be. And indeed, there are hints of this. Also here in our our text, look at verse 46 where it says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 30 years. You may know that was the age when the Levites had to be before they could enter into the service of the Lord in the tabernacle. And you may also know that that was the age when our Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry. It's also the age when Joseph began to rule Egypt. Now that's only one connection. But there are other things as well. I remind you both Joseph and Jesus were rejected by their own families who didn't understand them or appreciate them. Both were stripped, Joseph of his coat of many colors and Jesus of his outer garments. Both were sold. Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, Jesus for 30. Both were turned over to the Gentiles, Joseph to the Midianites and Jesus to the Romans. Both were imprisoned and incarcerated. And beloved, both were raised from the depths to the heights. Joseph from prisoner to prime minister. And Jesus went from a cross to a crown, from a grave to glory. And both were enthroned. Joseph on the throne of Egypt as the right-hand man of Pharaoh, and Jesus enthroned in heaven as the right-hand man of God. And both are greeted with bended knee. Joseph by the Egyptians, and one day Jesus by all the world. And so, beloved, there are all of these connections, these parallels. But there's also one more thing, and that's the deepest connection, a parallel of all, and that is one of faith and service. Joseph. Think of it, Joseph in his refusal to hate his brothers, in his refusal to compromise his holiness, in his refusal to turn against God because of his hard circumstances and because his lot in life had become so challenging. In all of those things, he points us to Christ. And so you know that's something that should strike us. And it should also challenge us. What's the calling of believers today? Is it not to have Christ as our model? 
Paul writes to the Thessalonians and reminds them that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And he writes to the Corinthians and he tells them, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You know, Joseph's life, his life with the Lord points us ahead to Jesus Christ. And that reminds us, does it not, of our position? Without having really known him, Joseph, in his walk and talk, testified to the coming Messiah. And what then about us? We know him. We know him very clearly from his word. We know him, we hear him, as it were, we see him, and we love him. How much greater than our task and our responsibility to reflect him and to model him in word and deed, in life and action, in walk and talk. One well-known Christian writer has said that Christ is our model functions in a number of ways. He is our model when it comes to humility. He is our model when it comes to serving. He is our model when it comes to loving our enemies. And he's our model when it comes to trusting and obeying God. You know, in all of those things, we see a little of Joseph. Maybe not at first when that coat of many colors seems to go to his head, but as he moves on in his life, we see it. But we see it so much more in every way. In Christ. And at the same time, we are led to ask, how much of this do we see in ourselves? in our own lives. So, beloved, Joseph is now the ruler of Egypt. The good years come, the good years go, and then the next seven years arises. And there are a whole new set of years. There are years of famine, of want, throughout the world. Struck me that famine, that's kind of a foreign word to us, isn't it? I think that perhaps a few of you, some of the older ones among us, experienced what it was like to have famine in those remaining years of World War II. Some of our African refugees perhaps also experienced famine. But by and large, to most of us, the word famine says very little. We've only known plenty. We have been, some would say, spoiled by living in the lap of luxury and plenty. But you know, that's not how it's been through most of human history, and neither is that the way it necessarily is in a large part of the world today. Hunger still stalks the world. And hunger came to the ancient world as well. But notice it says, not... To Egypt. 
And why not? Because as it says, in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. There was food. Because God's wisdom had come to Egypt through Joseph. When the people began to feel the effect of the famine, they cried to Pharaoh, and he in turn told them, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Pharaoh tells them, go to Joseph. And if you think of it, beloved, don't those words remind you of another messianic parallel? And the people of, of Egypt began to be anxious and in want They had a good Joseph. When we today experience need and want and insecurity, to whom do we go? Why, of course, where to go? To Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Because you see, on a deeper and more profound level, He is the one who ministers to all of our needs. When we are spiritually hungry, we are to remember that He is the bread of life. And when we are spiritually thirsty, we are to remember that He is the dispenser of living water. And when we are spiritually worn out, we are to remember that He is the one who invites us, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. And when we doubt and wonder, we are to remember that he is the one who declares, whoever comes to me, I will never drive out. So, beloved, it is the Pharaoh who points to Joseph. And it's Joseph who points to Christ. And when we go to Christ, we find all that we need. Everything for today and tomorrow. Everything for this life and the life to come. Everything for our bodies. Everything for our souls. Christ really is our all in all. So love him, serve him, and imitate him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.